If you're listening to a podcast like this, it's hard to imagine that you haven't come across the term Internet of Things, or IoT. Writ large, IoT refers to the emerging universe of devices that have some form of network connectivity. That is, they can talk to each other. They collect, process, and analyze data and return it to the user. From the Alexa smart speaker that a busy parent might bark at to turn on some bedtime music, and in a more connected house to also dim the lights and turn down a thermostat, to a self-driving car, the Internet of Things is definitely a thing. By December of this year, there'll be 23 billion connected devices globally, according to Statista, expected to rise to 50 billion by 2020. And in the U.S., nearly one out of five people, some 47 million of us, had a smart speaker in their home as of March of this year, according to voicebot.ai. And a lot of people have a lot of thoughts about that. If you're Jordan Duffy, a serial entrepreneur and tech expert, you're rather bullish. So as we welcome the whole universe to the next era of connectivity, I ask, once all of our tasks are automated, when the things that we currently do every day and the jobs that half of you love and half of you hate are actually replaced by IoT devices, artificial intelligence and interconnected systems, what do we do? We come back to creativity, innovation and humanity. We cannot replace our need to create new things, to improve them and to build interpersonal relationships. We invent, we build, we optimise, we operate, we innovate, and we remember to enjoy sometimes before we invent again. IoT is the beginning of a new era. Thank you. And if you're an identity theft expert like Rose Barker, your outlook might be a bit more sanguine. How would you feel if some hacker across the country knew what brand of milk that you buy? Or if you're really being faithful to your paleo diet? Probably wouldn't care very much. But what if that hacker were also a thief? And they used your smartphone fridge app to gain access to your entire phone. This actually happened, by the way, through a refrigerator. And they got your Gmail login and password. They started sending spam emails to your family and friends. They got access to all of your apps, online passwords, accounts. They've drained your bank account. And you have no way to regain your privacy. Unfortunately, this situation is all too real for many Americans today. Ask yourself, is it really worth it to have a smartphone fridge app to see your grocery list if you could lose your most valuable possession? And that is your identity. While the BBC observes... Most of the cybersecurity firms we spoke to think more needs to be done to protect us from future hacking attempts. That's not very surprising given that they have a clear stake in more protection. But with the Internet of Things becoming an ever-growing reality, the risks of cybercrime may be more dangerous than ever. Now, there's one voice that might merit deeper consideration. Speaking at a recent Shannon Luminary lecture at Nokia Bell Labs, he struck a more nuanced position. I'm not worried and scared about robots are taking over or AI is taking over the world. I'm concerned about software that has been given autonomy to make decisions without my intervention. That's what scares me, because if that software has bugs and makes mistakes, 
I can't see ahead of time that a mistake is going to be made. It's going to happen, and only then will I discover it's a problem. So we should be really careful about handing over control to pieces of software whose functionality we may still be a little concerned about. That person? None other than Vint Cerf, a man many consider to be one of the fathers of the Internet. From Nokia Bell Labs, this is Future Human, a series about the human potential of technology. This time around, we have a rare audience with Vint Cerf as he shares with us his prescription for our connected future. This is episode 12, The Internet of Common Sense. Now, as impressive as Vint Cerf's legacy of accomplishments is, from co-designing TCPIP, the networking protocols that allow computers to communicate with each other, with Bob Kahn in the 70s, to launching the first commercial internet email system in the 80s, what might be most impressive is his modesty and wit. The 70-something now works at Google, serving as vice president and chief internet evangelist. But, as he explains it, when uh, Larry and Eric and Sergey uh, invited me to join the company, they said, what title do you want? And I thought about it for a while, and they said, how about Archduke? And I, thought, <laughs> I thought that was a terrific title. And so they went away, but they came back and they said, you know, the previous Archduke was Ferdinand, and he was, just, he was assassinated in 1914, and it started World War I, so maybe that's a bad title to have. Why don't you be our chief internet evangelist? I said, okay, I can do that. In setting up his lecture, which you can hear in its entirety in episode 13 of this series, he does his best to manage expectations. Now, all of you know that the title of this, not this title, but the, this is Shannon Luminary Lecture. Now, I am nervous as hell about this because Shannon is an icon. He's, he's a god in our universe uh, who brought uh, a deep idea about information to all the rest of us. And I don't have anything close to a Shannon-quality lecture to offer you. So I hope that you'll forgive me that. What he does offer is a sober and pragmatic outlook for how to think about the proliferation of smart devices and what guidelines developers should be following. You remember what Einstein said? Things should be as simple as possible, but no simpler. If you design IoT devices and you have a, an overly simple model of how they should work, uh, you will create chaos. Truth be told, as Vint tells Bell Labs president and Nokia CTO Marcus Weldon in the Q&A after the lecture, even the father of the internet has his own challenges with these things. We need to have essentially effortless configuration or there may be a whole new type of job available now that the person who comes and actually helps you configure your house and maintain it. Those jobs already exist, I know, because I have a custom-made entertainment system. The software uh, is available. I actually have the source code available. I don't have time to fix it when it breaks, so I have to have a guy drive in from 100 miles away every time something goes wrong with my entertainment system, which is actually a good reason not to do too much customized stuff. But the important thing is that you can imagine people having jobs to maintain the operation of your smart home before it becomes a smart-ass home. (laughs) 
not bad for a spontaneous laugh line, right? He does double down on IoT's implications for the workforce. So everybody runs around saying, all the jobs are going away. I guarantee you, when you start putting this kind of technology in place, lots of new jobs will come along as a result. However, the people whose jobs may have gone away may need retraining in order to do the new jobs. And that's important to keep in mind. I think one of two things is going to happen. Either we're going to have this utopian, wonderful thing where all these devices just work for us and they work the way they're supposed to and life will be lovely, or it's just going to be some kind of nightmare on Elm Street. And I frankly think we'll experience both ends of that spectrum uh, as these devices get out into use. Vint makes it clear from the get-go that his fellow engineers and coders bear a heavy responsibility. I think that people who write software have gotten away with murder for the last 80 years or so because they say, well, it's just a bug. But when we're relying on these devices to do things for us, just a bug may be more than just a bug. And so I tell my programmers to feel great responsibility on their shoulders for writing software with great care to do everything they can to avoid bugs and mistakes and to be damn sure that if we do find a problem, that we have a way to fix it. And not surprisingly for the man who was a co-founder of the Internet Society in 1992, advocating for education, policy, and standards for the emerging Internet, the IoT landscape will definitely require a similar focus on standardization. We are, whether we like it or not, there's going to be billions of these devices out there. Uh, If you consider a smartphone to be one of them, then there already are billions of those devices already in our hands. And some of them are not going to get uh, adequate support after they've been sold and installed. And I consider that to be an ethical failure. But there are people who will simply build the device, grab a piece of software from GitHub, throw it in, sell the device, and not pay any attention after that. And I think that we are going to end up with regulatory issues associated with that kind of behavior. Certainly, some of these things won't meet all the kinds of desirable properties we talked about before. The question is, how do you know? Will somebody tell us? Will somebody evaluate the devices? Is there an underwriter's lab for IoT that, uh, that should be uh, implemented, and can we trust it? We need something, because you and I are not going to sit down and try to look through the source code, even if we could get our hands on it. The first law is as follows. A robot may not harm a human being or, through inaction, allow a human being to come to harm. Number two, a robot must obey orders given it by qualified personnel unless those orders violate rule number one. In other words, a robot can't be ordered to kill a human being. Uh, Rule number three, a robot must protect its own existence. That's also an expensive piece of equipment. Uh, unless that violates rules one or two. A robot must cheerfully go into self-destruction if it is in order to follow an order or to save a human life. As any dedicated sci-fi fan can tell you, those are the three laws of robotics, as recited by their inventor, science fiction author Isaac Asimov. If you read or saw iRobot, you're familiar with them. And in his conversation with Marcus after the lecture, Vince suggests making IoT devices similarly aware of their limitations. What's interesting is that that's Asimov's attempt to formulate a set of fairly simple rules which are intended to bound the behavior of the robots. 
I can imagine trying to formulate something like that for IoT devices to say that we should try to build into them hmm. limits to their autonomous behavior that gives confidence to people that they are safe and secure, you know, have your privacy in mind and so on. We don't have anything quite as crisp as the Asimov definition because the autonomous devices we're talking about don't have the mental capacity, can I use that word with a robot? The positronic <laughs> capacity of, of uh, a robot to think uh, in the same way that Asimov ascribes to his robot. I think that part of the solution to this, if I call it a solution, or maybe let us say response to this problem, is to design these systems so that they have some ability to sense when they have gone beyond their normal bounds, when they have gone... We, we need red lines, so to speak. And if they are detectable, a parameter has gone out of scope, for example, uh, then you could make a kind of generic uh, assertion. The device will not get into a state that goes outside of this parametric space. And that might solve... And then it has to have a shutdown mode or, or some other it, sort of rescue it, mode. It has to be yeah. that. It, ha it has to be able to sense that it is exceeding its operating parameters, to borrow uh, Commander Data's terms. <laughs> uh, but, but the ability to specify and to sense this, I think, could be quite a powerful um, design uh, paradigm I agree. for the IoT devices. In our conversation after the lecture, I asked Vint if one of his most famous contributions, the commercialization of email, will remain relevant in the age of IoT. I am persuaded that as time goes on, um, we will want to use that medium or texting or something in order to interact with the Internet of Things, for instance, or with other artificially intelligent uh, programs that in theory are there to make our lives easier. So it's a potentially useful and uh, potentially high-precision means of communication. Are you suggesting I have a conversation with my refrigerator? Yes, I can. I can imagine that when you're shopping, for example, you should be able to ask the refrigerator what's in it, or does it have this or that, or how old is the milk or the cheese or what have you. Or you should be able to send an email uh, to find out you know, what uh, is in the refrigerator. You could imagine interacting with other appliances around the house. I think those are all completely reasonable. What I like is the, let's say, a multiplicity of media through which to have those interactions. So if I have an intelligent assistant, I want to be able to call it on the phone, send it an email, send it a text, uh, you know, interact directly uh, in real time in order to use any particular modality that happens to be convenient to me at the time. So while his outlook for smart appliances is less fraught than Rose Barker's, the identity theft expert we heard from earlier, Vint, ever the pragmatist, remains focused on the role that humans play in our interactions across vast social networks. There are many people who will not question things because they are comfortable with whatever opinions are being expressed. This is uh, sometimes called confirmation bias. And it's easy to create feedback bubbles using this confirmation bias notion where people don't want to question because if they did, then they would be questioning what they feel are strongly held beliefs. And so that's why some of the arguments among people who have different views never quite result in a useful engagement because some of the parties will not want to consider the possibility that their views are wrong.
That's as good a description of where political discourse is in 2018 as I've heard. So I ask him, is there any way to combat the propagation of fake news, in some cases via automated bots, that reinforces this stalemate? His answer is both true to form and eye-opening. So now we have an algorithmic challenge to begin with. The peculiar asymmetry here is that a person can decide to exercise a botnet to amplify their voices, so to speak. And so instead of taking an opinion, uh, some extreme opinion, for, for example, and asserting it once, you can use a botnet to assert that opinion and make it look as if tens of millions of people believe what you believe. This is causing a great deal of confusion. Now, it's simplistic to assume that we can solve the problem by literally trying to tell the difference between a botnet and a human. There's a deeper thing that needs to happen, and I think it's on the receiving side. It's, it's the human beings who are experiencing these social media. And that's for those people to start exercising critical judgment, critical thinking about the content they're actually seeing. We don't ask questions that we should ask. Where did this come from? Was there a reason that was put up onto the whatever the medium is? Uh, is there any corroborating evidence for some assertion that's being made? Is there an incentive to put this up and mislead people? For one thing, it's not always easy to determine who the parties are that are injecting content uh, into the system. It's easy to hide that source. Second, it's sometimes very difficult to tell the difference between a bot and a person. There's a famous Turing test where a human being is trying to distinguish between a computer and a human. And if the human is unable to tell the difference, then the computer has passed the Turing test. That's Turing test number one. Turing test two, which is I've just made up, uh, is a computer talking to a computer and a human, trying to tell the difference between the human and the computer. And if the computer is unable to distinguish between the two, then it has failed Turing test two. So if you're geeked up to hear Vint's entire lecture, including the audience Q&A, please check out our very next episode, number 13. It's a great listen. For more information about the topics discussed today, please check our show notes. If you like this episode of Future Human, please consider subscribing wherever you get your podcasts. Also, feel free to leave a review at Apple Podcasts because it helps people find the show. Future Human is a production of Nokia Bell Labs. This episode was written and produced by me, Sandy Smallins, for Audiation.fm. It was recorded and mixed at the Loft in Bronxville, New York, by Matt Noble, who also composed the theme music with me. Additional production by Kelly Kramer. Audiation.